As you're having a seat, I just want to invite you for a brief moment to continue what we just sang and maybe just quietly with your eyes closed, take a deep breath. Just talk to the Lord and just say, Lord, I need you in. Or maybe it's, Lord, I need you too. Lord, and I say amen. Even so, Lord, and trust that you know what we need before we even ask. We commit this time to you, we commit our lives to you, and we ask your blessing. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles or in your phones to Ephesians. If you have a Bible, I'll tell you the easy way to think of Ephesians, because it can get lost there. Does anybody remember it from last week? There it is, General Electric Power Company. Amy wanted to be very sure that I saw that it was her. She just, look at her. Good job. General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. We're in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to pick up uh, in verse 3. And we're going to look here in the longest sentence in the whole New Testament. But before we get to the longest sentence in the whole New Testament... I want to remind you the big picture of what we're after when we look at this little book, Ephesians. And I'll point your attention to these main points. The whole key to understanding Ephesians is this. You have a new identity in Christ. Amen. Amen. We can just stop there and go home. You have a new identity in Christ. The old you, that's fine. But there's a new you. And that new you is firmly placed in Christ. So, Understanding your new identity empowers you to live a new life in Christ. So once you get who you really are, that gives you the power, the wind in your sails, to live how you truly are. Simple as that, right? Well, Ephesians gives us a ski lift view. That's the illustration we used in our intro. It gives us the big picture, beautiful view of the expansive mountain of what God has done in Christ. But it also gives us the day-to-day, ground-level view of how to live in Christ. So Ephesians has these big sweeping views like the view we're going to look at tonight, the longest sentence in the New Testament, That's a big, beautiful, gorgeous view of the mountain. And it's of what God has done. What? You can easily cheat. It's right there. Two words. In Christ. It's a beautiful view of what he's done in Christ. And then Ephesians also gives us these beautiful, practical, powerful, day-to-day, ground-level views of how to live. What? In Christ. Christ. The centerpiece of everything in Ephesians is those really two words, in Christ. It's two of Paul's favorite words. It makes its way into all of his 13 letters. And it has everything to do with his theology. And tonight we're going to see it has everything to do with God's plan. God's plan. Paul, imagine, is sitting in jail. He's meditating on God's work. What he's done in Christ And he's meditating on, okay, now how does that have any bearing on how to live in Christ? He's meditating, he's sitting in jail, 
And what happens is he erupts and he writes this letter or dictates this letter and he rails off over 200 words with no periods in the original language and it is dense and wild and epic and when I hear it, this amazing run-on sentence that's 14 verses in the first chapter of Ephesians, I hear a song that Amy would not let me play for you all tonight but I hear a song by Van Halen. I'm not a Van Halen fan, but I am a child of the 90s. And I, my favorite movies were Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Wayne's World. And when I learned to play guitar, I wasn't listening to Simon and Garfunkel. I was listening to Led Zeppelin and Van Halen. And there's a song by Van Halen called Eruption. It's like two minutes, and it is this monstrous, ripping, massive, wild solo. It's got drums, and it's like just... So everything you'd think of when you think of arena rock and hair metal. And when I read this sentence, I hear this maestro not shredding on a Stratocaster, but he's, this is so lame, I can't even finish that analogy. He's shredding on a, the word of God, or I don't know. <laughs> Paul's longest sentence is not just a theological rant, though. It's, it's not just a riff. It's an eruption of praise. And so when I listen to Eruption, sometimes I have a tendency to go back to my 13-year-old days before I could look up tabs on the internet and I would sit there and I would try to noodle out the little intricate notes that I couldn't. I'd try to sit there and get lost in the dense little finger this and try to do that. But then what I realized is, you know what? Let Van Halen be Van Halen and let Eruption just be Eruption. And this is the kind of sentence, just like eruption is the kind of song where you, you don't need to get lost in all the intricate details. It was designed and performed, or in this case, Paul's case, written, not that we would get lost in the little notes, but that we would catch the big, sweeping, energetic, beautiful view of everything that God has done in Christ. And he's only scratching the surface and he only fits it into one sentence. We're going to look at the first part of this sentence tonight. I told you it was 14 verses in our Bible. It's 10 verses we're going to try to look at, Lord willing, tonight. The whole thing is a praise song. It's an eruption of praise, and we get that, firstly, chiefly, because in verse 3, the first word in the NIV, which is what we'll look at tonight, says praise. But really, in maybe your Bible, it says blessed so this is a whole praise song, blessing song to God the Father and everything that he's done in Christ. So let's let eruption rip off, not the Van Halen style, but the St. Paul style. I want to read this through, verses 1 to 10, which is about half of his sentence. I just want to read 3 to 10 so we can catch the energy, catch the denseness, catch the energy. I just said energy twice probably. I want to read this. Let's listen to Paul. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ 
in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. It's a benediction, it's an eruption, it's a praise song, and that first word there, praise or blessed, is thoroughly Jewish. Paul didn't invent this guitar solo. It is something that he had meditated on and steeped in and read in the Psalms, and it says, blessed be God. This is something he hears every day when he goes to the synagogue. Maybe if you come to this church, you hear someone say, hey, welcome, uh, you know, or you hear prayers in Jesus' name. You hear these familiar phrases. Paul, where it says, blessed be God, that is a familiar phrase. And when he sees it in the Old Testament, he sees that it's a formula that says, blessed be God who, and blessed be God who does. And so what Paul says here is, praise be or blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing we need to see is that who God is, what he's saying God is about, is relational. A lot of times in the Psalms it say, praise God most high, or praise God my rock. And here Paul says, praise God the Father. But it's not just God the Father, or the God and Father. He is related to, relational with, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for Paul, and in this letter, everything he believes that God has done, everything he says here that he's blessed us with, he's blessed us in whom? Jesus. In Christ. So N.T. Wright says when he's jamming on Paul's riffing and the long sentence, he says this, for Paul, let's look at this quote, if we still have the quote. As far as Paul is concerned, any picture of God which doesn't now have Jesus in the middle of it is a distortion or a downright fabrication. See, Paul, for Paul, those two words in Christ that I told you are not just a big picture of the Ephesian letter, it's found 11 times in his one sentence. So when he says, blessed be God, he's relentless in saying, blessed be God who did this in Christ. Blessed be God who did this in Christ. Blessed be God who did this in Christ. So when he says he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing that he's going to rattle off in the rest of this passage finds its meaning, finds its centerpiece in Christ. There is nothing God has done to save us or show us how to live apart from what he has done in Christ. There is nothing God the Father has done to save us or show us how to live apart from what he's done in Christ. This is good news. This is big news. And what I mean by this is Christ is at the very center of everything God has wanted to do since before the foundation of the world. Christ is at the center 
of how we live our lives today. N.T. Wright is not an Anabaptist, but that's very Anabaptist of him. Anabaptist is a weird word for people who are Jesus folk, and they're from a tradition of theology that we kind of identify with that's several hundred years old, and really we're just all about Jesus. We look to the Scriptures and we see it all points to Jesus. And N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican, not an Anabaptist, gets Paul's theology, this in Christ blessing, this in Christ psalm. He gets that if it doesn't have Jesus in the center, it just ain't really what God is like. Because God the Father has related to the world and shown himself in the person and work of Jesus. If you don't believe me, we can talk later. You can look at John 1. It says the word who was God and is God became flesh. You can look at Colossians 1. that says the image of the invisible God is Jesus in the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit dwelt bodily in Jesus. We can look at Hebrews chapter 1 that says, in the days past he spoke through prophets and the law, but in these days he's spoken through Son. He starts and says, blessed be God who blessed us in Christ. That's the paraphrase of verse 3. And he's relentless in keeping that praise going in Christ through every blessing throughout the rest of this awesome rock and roll sentence. So how has he blessed us? What's he blessed us with? Let's go back and look at verse three. He says every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. Basically, heavenly realms and spiritual, these are unseen realities. But just because they're unseen doesn't mean they're any less real. A lot of times we say God has blessed us with a home, or he's blessed us with food. He's blessed us with a vehicle. These are things we can see and touch. They are real to us. But what Paul is going to go through and what we're going to look at tonight, these spiritual blessings are unseen, but still just as real as the things we can touch. Later in verse 7, if you allow me to jump ahead, we won't go there on the screen, but for an example of this, a spiritual blessing that he's going to rail off the rest of his sentence. In verse 7, we're told we have forgiveness of sins. Well, that's an unseen spiritual blessing, isn't it? Can you see that your sins are forgiven? Can you see your sins? Sometimes. Can you see them forgiven? Well, people can tell you, I forgive you. But in the cosmic scale, can you see your sins? But, We're told that in verse 7, we have forgiveness of sins in Christ. And so what I mean by recognizing your new identity, empowering you to live a new life is this. If you recognize and trust that God has forgiven you in Christ, it empowers you to walk through and live free of guilt. It's the reason why so many Christians who are still racked with guilt and think God is out to get them, it's because they've not gotten the fact that in Christ, they're forgiven. Father, forgive me. Oh, you, you, you hate me, I just know it. You're ready to get me, oh, you're ready to get me. The problem is we can't see or let ourselves believe that Christ died once and for all on the cross, and elsewhere in Colossians 2 it says, All of our sins went with him on the cross. It's done. But we walk around, we get distracted because we can't see it. We can't taste it. We don't want to believe it. We get so easily distracted. 
Later in verse 5, we'll talk about this again in a moment. He says he's given us adoption. He's predestining us for adoption to sonship. Well, I can't see the adoption papers. But I'll tell you where I lived this week. Here's where I lived this week. One sentence that he was been trying to get through to me for the better part of last year, when I had this anxiety welling up in me, when I had this doubt welling up in me, when I had this accusations welling up in me, these compulsions welling up in me, one sentence God was trying to make, break through if I had sat down and shut up for more than five minutes. Here's what it was. You are my beloved son whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. If that sounds familiar to you, that's a, a sentence that the Father spoke to Jesus the Son at his baptism. Now, I'm very well aware that I am not Jesus, <laughs> right? I am not Jesus, but I chose to make myself, watch, very much aware that I'm in Jesus. And that's the difference. Because when I realized or got distracted and thought, I must not be in Jesus, I must not be Jesus's, things like panic attacks hit me like they did last week, okay? When I choose to get distracted and think I'm not in Jesus, well, then I start listening to the voices that say you're no good, you're worthless, and the kinds of voices that are plaguing you, I imagine. And so we have a choice then, don't we? We can't see our thoughts, but we sure will listen to them. So I'm just asking us, Paul's asking us to wake up to the unseen realities that say if you can get it, you can live it. If I get that I'm a beloved son because I'm in Christ, if I get that I am loved by him, accepted by him, then I won't walk around fearing not being accepted by all of you or by the people who hate me. Because if I'm accepted by the God of the universe, I don't care much what this person thinks. This is what I mean when we say, we have a new identity, we've got to stay awake to it. And that's why Paul is starting his letter with this beautiful truth. Bless you, God, for blessing us with all these things we can't see, but are very much real and have everything to do with our life today in Jesus. So let's look at some of these spiritual blessings that we can't see to help guide our, the rest of our time as we wade through this very difficult and dense sentence, I want to show you that the next blessings are ordered around a plan that God had. We just saw the benediction. That's the introduction sentence that says, bless you God for blessing us. Then you'll see in verses four to six, he's talking about all the things that God has blessed us in Christ, all the things he blessed us in in the past even before the foundation of the world. Then he moves on through because he's riffing like Van Halen. And he says God's plan spills out into the middle of history. And we found that he lavished his grace on us. And he did it in the cross. You see that in the middle piece, verses 7 to 8. The cross is not mentioned, but that is where we find these spiritual blessings of redemption and forgiveness. That's God's plan in the middle of history. Everything in the past was gearing up toward that plan revealed in the cross in the middle of history. You with me? He doesn't stop there. The train keeps moving, and he works toward God's plan in the future. You'll see there I have the last half of verse 8 and 10 there. Really, God's plan in the future 
spills over into verse 14, all the way through verse 14. So I'm looking at the time and thinking, we may just have to save God's plan in the future uh, with the rest of the future stuff next week. So same bat time, same bat channel, come back next week and we'll talk about God's beautiful plan in the future. Here's how we can help think about the plan. Because I'm about to read some words and verses that are scary to people like me at times in my life that have grown up in the church, particularly in the American church. When we hear words like chosen and predestined, like we read earlier and we're about to look at, we get pretty mm, squeamish. Unless you're of a certain theological position and then you get very excited because those words are awesome and they're fun to debate people about. Let's look at the words I'm talking about. Here's Ephesians 1, 4-6, God's plan in the past. For He chose us. God chose us in Him. Who's in Him? Christ. Okay? He chose us in Christ. When? Before the creation of the world. To be holy and blameless in His sight. Maybe yours says in His sight or in love. Regardless, it can be in the next sentence too. He chose us, and he says, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Now, we're talking about God's plan at this point, aren't we? We're talking about God's plan in the past. When you hear the word plan coupled with, watch, the words like chosen and predestined. If you're like I was, you read Ephesians 1 and other verses in the Bible like this, hearing the words chosen, predestined, and thinking about God's plan through all eternity. You might imagine God up in the heavens with a great blueprint of world history. And he's got the whole thing from beginning to end marked out. Point A to point Z. And every little thing in between, every fleck of dust, every holocaust, every marriage, every baby crying, every baby dying, every little thing in the great scheme of the cosmos all happens perfectly according to God's plan. And when we have that view of God with the great blueprint of the universe laid out, and then we hear words like chosen us, predestined us, we say, well, if God has a blueprint and God is sovereign or in control of all things and he chose some people, that means that God has chosen you, 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 and not you, 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 you. And God has predestined, which is a word like chosen we're going to talk about in a moment, and he's predestined you to have a destination of, watch, heaven, but you guys over here, sorry this half of the auditorium tonight, you guys are destined to H-E double hockey sticks. And we get this view. And the fact that I have to come up here and spend the bulk of our time as we close here, don't, we've still got a few minutes, I say close, I mean just bear with me a little bit. I've got to stand up here and explain away some of the kind of views of God and theology that we've inherited. But the truth of the matter is, when Paul wrote this, for the first 300 years of Christianity, they had a thoroughly Jewish idea of how God, watch, chooses and predestines people. 
And I use people because Paul here is writing about choosing and predestining plural people. So let's think of God's plan not as a blueprint where every individual and every micro spec uh, is chosen and laid out. I'm going to invite you to think of God's plan for just a moment in a more Jewish way. And I'm going to do it in a non-Jewish setting and take you to Montreal, Quebec. Amy and I, before we came to Providence, were praying and seriously thinking about living and moving in Montreal. Now, incidentally, that church up there was called Providence Community Church. So we were praying which Providence. That's where we were at. And what's crazy about Montreal is that we hate cold weather, and we have never spoken or taken one minute of French in our educational life. And so we go to Montreal, and we fell in love with the city, but we realized that everywhere in the city, there's French. There's French. We grew up in Texas with a bunch of Hispanic friends, and we're up here with I was with a Mexican in Montreal, and he was no help. He was even worse, this dude. And so what we had to do to get around Montreal was we looked at the plan of the metro subway system. So we're Texans that don't know French, and we're Texans who are used to driving our own cars. And I realized that we could not navigate this great city unless we learned to navigate those highlighted stops at the end of the line. And so if we just learned to somehow in our Texan way pronounce Honoré Bogard, Bogrand, these French people, after they finished laughing at us, understood that we were headed a particular direction. In order to navigate Montreal, we had to learn the last stop. I think God's plan is more like a train. It has a beginning, and we're told here in Ephesians that beginning was before the creation of the world. And God's plan, I believe, is less like a blueprint in which he chose every terrible thing that happened in this world. Because let me tell you something, the scriptures always stop short of saying that God is the direct first cause of evil, period. I used to be a Calvinist. I used to believe this way. I was a blueprint guy. And the scriptures do talk of God's control, God's some ordaining of events in the cosmos, but scriptures never lay murder and violence and wickedness directly at the feet of a holy and righteous God. And for us Anabaptists, if we can't imagine Jesus doing burning Jews in an oven in the Holocaust, I can't imagine that he would just be really keen on that. However, if we view God's plan not as a meticulous blueprint, but if we look at God's plan as a train that has a direct beginning, and it has, more importantly even, a final end. So just like in Montreal, we trusted we were headed in the right direction when we learned the end game. God's plan, he has predestined a last stop. You with me? The last stop that he set out and planned before the creation of the world, way back here, is that he would rescue a people. 
And he would rescue creation even. And his kingdom would come and his will would be done perfectly. That's the last stop. God's plan that he set out, the train left the station and it was headed on one track and God was not going to see it derailed. So everything that happens in history, God is bending and working and uh, in some way ordaining, controlling some great mystery. God is seeing fit that that train that departed, God's plan that he set out before creation, it was going to see the end game. Death would not win, sin would not win, Satan would not win. That train was going to reach home regardless of the mess we make of this world. So here's where it involves us and chosen and predestined and this Jewish understanding I told you about earlier. You still with me? I don't want to get lost in the particular notes because where we got to end is praise God for his beautiful plan. And his beautiful plan is this. Before creation, God said, I'm going to choose a people. Okay? This word choose is not unique. It doesn't just show up in Ephesians chapter 1 for the very first time. This language is throughout the Old Testament. This language is throughout. It starts in one place we looked at briefly last week, Deuteronomy 7. Make note of it. He comes to Israel and he says, guess what? Of all the nations lined up along the wall, I pick the puniest little runt who should have been picked last. I pick you for my dodgeball team. Israel, you're all the team I need. But watch, it wasn't just one person, it was persons. So when Paul says he chose us, Guess what Paul means? He chose us. God's choosing means to line up all the nations and in some great part of his plan, before the creation of the world, he said, I want a people. And he says in Deuteronomy 7, I didn't pick you because you were the biggest or the strongest. He said, I picked you because I loved you. And the problem is, when we start to read it individually, when we start to say, maybe not a people he's chosen, but you, 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 not you, not you, not you, we begin to lose sight of the doctrine, the Old Testament, the Jewish understanding, the understanding that Paul is writing in his big song of praise. We lose the understanding that God picked a people and us. And when he picked Israel in the Old Testament, Later on, I told you about Deuteronomy 7. He said, I picked you because I loved you. Later on in Deuteronomy 7, the people he chose, watch, are given a choice. Okay? In Deuteronomy 30, we don't have time. Deuteronomy 30, write it down. Deuteronomy 30, he says, Today, Israel, my chosen people, I set before you a choice. So they're chosen but they have choice. Hang on to that. I set before you life and I set before you death. Choose life in relationship with me, be blessed. Choose death in separation from me, well, you get death. You're done, man. Because that's the wages of this world, this sin. So God says, chosen people choose life. You with me? 
Here's what I'm going to get at. Here's where we're going to steer the ship. Remember our train. God said in point A, when the train left the first stop, he says, I'm going to choose a people. And the train gets to rumbling. And then he's gathering up Israel. Okay? Let's imagine that all of Israel that he's chosen, they were given a choice. Choose life, choose death. So as the train gets to rumbling, it stops in Israel town. It stops in Jerusalem and says, hey, you've been chosen. Choose life or choose death. All the people who choose life hop on the train. You with me so far? All the people who choose life hop on the train. God said, I'm going to choose a people, and he invites them to ride the train. And all those who remain on the train will see the end. Life with God through the reign of Jesus Christ, Messiah, through all eternity. God chose a people, but the persons had a choice to ride the train. Does that make sense? I'm telling you, I don't believe, especially here, Paul has any view of choosing individuals. Paul, who is a Jewish person who's meditating on God's work in Christ, praises him for choosing an us. And the train has left the station, and the next stop after Israel, stick with me, is the mystery we see in Ephesians. He says the mystery, watch in verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through whom? Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. The train car keeps rumbling. Israel was chosen to be a holy nation, a blameless nation. Some of them fell off the train. More of them came on the train. And then all of a sudden the train stops and we've got Jesus. And then Jesus breaks open the invitation and says, all are invited in if they come through me. Amen. So the train was, watch, predestined to, be, to bring adoption to people in Christ. Predestined is a word that means marked out. God marked out a plan for the train to come, and he invited many people to come and be adopted. Are you still with me? He did not, I believe, make individuals choose him. Jesus himself says, when talking about a marriage banquet in Matthew, he says, many are invited, but few are chosen. That is to say, everyone's invited, but only a few are going to hop on the train. And remember where that train is going to head up? Where is that train going to wind up? It's going to wind up, as we'll look at more next week, in Him, when you're adopted, you find redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. You're in the train, you're what? What did He say earlier? Holy and blameless in His sight. Don't walk around in guilt, you're forgiven in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 
at the Jesus stop, hang on, at the Jesus stop on the cross, what God lavished on the world was not wrath. What God lavished on the world, that word is like grace made a verb. What God graced on the world was an open invitation of love that says every obstacle, every enemy, everything that kept you from being my son and daughter on my train to the end game of life with me, every obstacle was obliterated by Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus conquered death, conquered sin, conquered the grave, conquered every fear, every negative thought, every bad thing you would do, every thinking of bad thing you do, every temptation, every demon, every addiction, every disease, when everything pulled together in the blackness of the cross, God was pouring his grace on the world and he lavished us. I imagine him just taking an enormous bucket of grace, if grace was a liquid, and he'd throw it on the world. And when we look at the cross, it's ugly, isn't it? It's ugly because all of the blackness and darkness is pooling at the foot of the cross in the heart of Jesus, the Son of God. But what he was doing was taking that mess to the grave and rising again victorious. He says, guess what? It's there. It's done. Now, whosoever will may come and ride the train. To stretch the analogy and at the risk of being super cheesy, That is what bought our ticket on the train to the end game, which is the kingdom come in fullness because the king died in our place. And he died to rescue people because the same choice is before us, life and death. The same choice is before us with our thoughts. Old life, old identity, listen to that, or new life, new identity, Christ, Listen to him. What does it mean then? We were predestined to be adopted. Well, I never saw that. But at this moment, understanding that if you're in Jesus, you are swimming in an ocean of grace that he has lavished on us. And Paul said he is rich with grace. He's shown us this plan so that we might praise him. So the question is this, at this moment, do you recognize the fact that God wanted you? He wanted to have you. And I believe that scripture, while there are verses that appear otherwise, and there are godly, faithful people who believe this, I don't believe God made you choose him. I believe that God has broken down every obstacle on the cross so that his invitation to dead people, which we talk about in Ephesians 2, his invitation can go out and he can make many alive and on the cross. So do you recognize right now that God wanted you so much that he gave his son Jesus to die for you? He wanted you before that train departed. He saw you, some iteration of you, some glimpse or thought or longing for you, and he wanted you to be on the train. 
So if you really recognize it, does it lead you to this theological angst? Right now, be honest. Are you like so confused right now because we're lost with this chosen or predestined? Let me release you from that and say this. Just rest in the fact that his grace is lavished on you and he is predestined or marked out the way for you to be daughter, for you to be son in Christ. There's a powerful story. Actually, before we get to the story, I just want to close with this. We're going to deal with the rest of it next week. Would you go to the three always? If you're angsty, if you're confused, Let's just write this down and think about this. Here's what we need to know. God always initiates salvation. If you believe He chose individuals or we choose Him, it's always God that takes the first step. That's what we see in Ephesians 4. Before the foundation of the world and the plan He laid out in Christ in the middle of history, He was the one who initiated salvation. The second thing that's an always you can take to the bank. God always desires relationship. He wants you. He didn't just want you before creation of the world. Listen to me. He wants you right now. He wants you in this moment and in the next moment and in the next moment to pay attention to him more than you pay attention to those defeating thoughts in your head. More than that negative person in your life. He wants you to pay attention to him and he wants to tell you you're loved. He wants to tell you you're accepted. He also wants to tell you there's some things you gotta let go. He's always desiring relationship. Not just in the salvation sense, but in the I do right now, let's be friends. (laughs) God always, number three, is motivated by love. All this predestination talk, all this chosen talk, you know where it finds its center point in God? Not because, and it's not favoritism. It's not, aha, I like them and not you. God always is motivated by love. John says that God is love. So whatever God is, it starts with love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sons. And I want to close with a thought or a benediction, just like Paul's, but mine's a lot shorter. There's a story that maybe many of you have heard. It's told by a writer, the late Brennan Manning. He wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel, which is great. You should get it. He also wrote a little book called uh, The Furious Longing of God. And in that book, he recounts a story of a 78-year-old nun. Brennan Manning was a Catholic priest, and he was at a convention or a gathering. And he was awakened in the middle of the night by a little knock on the door by a 78-year-old nun who came to him and confessed to him that she has been so burdened and weighed down and tormented to where she can't go to worship, she can't receive communion, she can't pray, she is dominated by horrible pain and visions of abuse from her father when she was a little girl. And every time in the Catholic Mass, she, they pray the Our Father, which is every time. I was at a Catholic funeral this week. We did an Our Father. Every time she hears the word Father, every time she hears in Ephesians the word predestined to adoption, 
Every time she reads in the Gospels or Paul's letters, cry out to Abba, which is Papa, a relational, just, just breaks her. It just tears her apart. Now I imagine there are many of us here tonight that can't relate to Father or maybe don't want to be adopted as a son or daughter because our earthly father was so messed up. So the 78-year-old nun comes, she knocks on the door in the middle of the night, and she comes to Brennan, and she says, she confesses these things that she's not told to anybody else. And so Brennan said, I think, in a powerful moment, guided by our Heavenly Father, he told her, would you, for the next 30 days, if all you can pray are these words, would you just wake up and pray this, think on this, as painful as it is, would you try to just breathe out these words, Abba, I belong to you. Abba, my girls say Dada. Nora's just saying Dada. She's been saying Mama forever. and it, Now when she says Dada, it just melts my heart. Abba would have been the way that they say Dada. She was told a 78-year-old nun to call her Heavenly Father, Dada, and say, I belong to you. This is what I mean by get it and live it. Get this identity. Let's not get lost in this. This is a praise song for the God who wanted us and saw to it that the train would come our way and pick us up. And it's a reminder that God the Father, there's nothing He's done to save us or show us how to live apart from what he's done in Christ. And one of those is to allow us to belong to him. So I want to close tonight as Spencer comes and plays. And before we come to the bread and the wine, as we sing and before we break the bread, would you just breathe out those words, perhaps, some of you? Abba, I belong to you. Abba, I belong to you. Because all this stuff about chosen and predestined, you know, it shouldn't cause us theological angst. It should well up like Paul. A blessing. Bless you, God, for blessing us as sons and daughters. So I just want to close now and invite you to breathe out those words, at least tonight and maybe for the better part of this week, just like me who needed it, a son who needed to recognize he's got an Abba. So let's close and pray. Father, Abba, we're so grateful that you've blessed us in so much bigger ways than money and health and stuff. So I ask now for spiritual health, emotional health, psychological health, that you would begin to heal us and shape us into the image of Christ because in Him, we're able to say, Daddy, to you, our Heavenly Father. So would you begin to heal us and speak to us as we cry out to you, Abba, I belong to you. Thank you.